Hey, my name is Tyler Clements. I am the director of Youth and Music. Our head pastor, George Boomer, is out of town this week, so uh, he decided to reach into the preaching bullpen and have me close out the summer of Psalms. So uh, I'll do my best, Mariana Rivera or Dennis Eckersley, if you remember, uh, to, to bring our summer series to a close in the Psalms. So turn to Psalm 144, please. Psalm 144, it's page 524 in your pew Bible. I don't know what page it is on your electric Bible. Which, don't worry about those. Just grab the pew Bible in front of you. It's, it, they work better. So I've chosen Psalm 144. To be honest, uh, mostly because as I look back through the Psalms that have been preached at Grace over the years, and I don't think this one's ever been preached. Uh, but also, I love the themes. I love the tone of this Psalm. I love how David writes about the character of God and, and then how he writes about himself and how he sings about how he, he actually prays that God would deliver him, and then how he looks at the end to this future blessing um, of peace. And so, as you're turning there, hopefully you're there by now, Psalm 144, let me pray before we read. God of all comfort and hope, um, we admit that we are a limited and we are needy people, so we come to your word asking for your presence and help to guide us. Um, by your spirit, please give us understanding to see what you want for us to see and to hear your voice today as we read your word. Um, help us not to just be hearers of your word, but doers as well, to not be like those the Apostle James warned about who hear your word and then completely forget about what they just saw, like a man forgetting what he looked like in a mirror. So help us to retain this, to sit under it as the ultimate authority for our lives. And so we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, Psalm 144 entitled, My Rock and My Fortress. It's a psalm of David. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you who gives victories to kings, who rescues David his servant from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is the right hand of falsehood. May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. And our response to the word is, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And so we've been in the Psalms all summer long, haven't we? And as you are well aware by now, the book of Psalms contains in it a variety of genres, kind of like musical genres. 
And in this book of 150 chapters, you can identify the genre by its structure, by its mood, and by its content. And it's helpful to know what genre you're reading because it helps you gain some understanding, right? So if you're, this is a little pro tip here, if you're one who struggles with understanding the Bible and reading it along with continuing to pray for the Spirit's help, right, because that's what the Spirit does, gives us understanding, start by identifying the genre. As you open the Bible, ask yourself, is this narrative? Am I in poetry? Is this a prophecy? Is this apocalyptic literature? That will help. For example, if I pick up a letter, or a piece of paper, I should say, and it says, Dear Tyler on the top, what I know is I'm about to read a letter, right? I know what, I have this category to expect. Whereas if I pick up another piece of paper and it says, Once upon a time, I know I'm reading a fairy tale, right? I've got this category to help me understand, and we all know how it will end, right? Happily ever after. Good job. You've read a fairy tale before. (laughs) So a letter is read differently than a fairy tale. And that's why with any book of the Bible that you start with, you you should ask yourself, what genre is this? It will help your understanding. And so in the book of Psalms, you find songs of praise, songs of lament, songs of thanksgiving, wisdom psalms and others, and we've read those and been through those this summer. Now, today, Psalm 144 is what's called a kingship psalm or a royal psalm. And the reason it falls in this genre is because it's written by King David, and it carries this theme of kingly conquest over his enemies. Now, this psalm is closely connected to Psalm 18, uh, which is another royal psalm, except there's a difference there. The deliverance and wartime victory in Psalm 18 has already happened, and David is praising God. He's celebrating for his deliverance. In fact, turn back there to Psalm 18. You can keep a finger in Psalm 144 if you're nervous. (laughs) Psalm 18, verse 46. Let's just read through the end of, of the chapter, and you'll hear some echoes from what we've already read this morning. Psalm 18, 46. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. So we see here this this great victory David experienced. The Lord saved him. Now you can read through the rest of Psalm 18 this week if you'd like to kind of pick up on some of those similarities. But as we find here in Psalm 144, David is, is later in his life praying to be rescued yet again. He's in the midst of a battle or perhaps he's about to engage in a battle and so he prays that God would bring him victory so that the covenant blessings would be experienced by all of God's people. Now, David was a king. He was a military commander, and though he didn't start that way, if you remember, God pulled him from being a mere shepherd boy and appointed him to rule over his people. Now, we don't necessarily relate, perhaps, to being a kingly military ruler, so what does this psalm have to do with us today? Well, quite a bit, as you can imagine. Though the context might look very different, The same themes and messages that we're going to look at today are true. They're true. In fact, they're so true, they're they're life-changing. We need this word to sink deep into our hearts 
in our souls to give us comfort and to give us hope. I mean, do you ever find yourself facing difficulties, challenges, battles, if you will, for which you feel completely ill-equipped? Do you ever find yourself skeptical of God's care over his creation, over mankind? Do you ever find yourself worrying about the future? What's life going to be like for future generations or even for my own children? Do you long for things to be made right, for peace instead of war, for blessing instead of curse, for health instead of sickness? Well, this psalm has something for us this morning. Because you and I know we're an anxious people, aren't we? We're finite, we're temporal, we're needy. And the reality is that we need something from outside of us to break in and deliver us, to save us, to provide for us what we cannot provide for ourselves. We need to be taught, we need to learn how to engage in the battles that lie before us. Now, thankfully, we have such a one that will calm our anxious hearts and will work and move on our behalf to strengthen us. Because you see, the battles that we fight in this life, they're abundant, they're inevitable. Therefore, we must have absolute dependence upon the character of God to help us and to enable us to be victorious, to experience real blessing. And so let's look closer at Psalm 144 as David sings about this. There are four main sections in this psalm, so if you're taking notes, um, you can list one through four, and we'll look at, number one, the greatness of God. We'll look at the greatness of God. And then second, we'll look at the smallness of man. And then three, the acts of God. And then four, the blessing of man. The greatness of God, the smallness of man, the acts of God, and then the blessing of man. Think of it maybe in directional terms. We're going to look up, we're going to look down, we're going to look around, and then we're going to look ahead. There you go, for those of you who are visual learners. And I did the actions too, in case you weren't looking. Sometimes that's helpful. <laughs> yeah. I lead, I lead a lot of kids' songs in my job, so you know, we do a lot of actions. Um, all right, number one, let's look at the greatness of God. Verses one and two. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. Wow, that's quite a list, right? of things that God is. I count seven, maybe eight, depending on how you do it. God is a rock, he's a trainer, he's steadfast love, he's a fortress, he's a stronghold, he's a deliverer, he's a shield, he's a place of refuge. Which when you're in a battle, this is exactly what you need to survive, isn't it? Blessed be the Lord, my rock. We know this image of rock very well. Uh, we sing about it often, right? We sing, On Christ, the solid rock I stand. We sing, Rock of Ages, or even Jesus is the rock, and he rolls my blues away. Sorry if you know that song. Yeah, old school, campy, probably never sing it here. Uh, maybe VBS, I don't know, it's an idea. But we know this picture of rock, right? A rock is what? It's stable, it's secure, it's, it's unchanging underneath your feet. Um, Jesus used the same in imagery as he was talking about um, those who hear his word and do it. He said they would be like builders building their house on a rock compared to those who don't obey the word and thus they'd be like building your house on sand. 
Rains are going to come, floods will rush towards you. What foundation have you built your life upon? God is a rock, and David knew this to be true of him. He also calls God a trainer. He says, he trains his hands for war and his fingers for battle. Now, this might seem a little redundant, but you have to remember this is Hebrew poetry, and David is employing some poetic parallelism here. In one sense, the type of battles that he fought needed the use of his hands, right, to wield a sword or his fingers to draw back the bow. But the point is that it is God who trains him. It was God who makes him ready. It is God who teaches him, who prepares him for the battles that lie ahead. And remember, this is the ruddy old David shepherd boy here from 1 Samuel 16, who at one time may have been good at rescuing sheep from the jaws of lions and bears, but he never fought armies before, let alone wielded a sword. He was chosen, right, as a young boy to fight Goliath with five smooth stones and a slingshot. And we all know what happened there, right? David had to learn, for the battle is the Lord's, 1 Samuel 17, 47. David needed to be taught that lesson, that God would train his hands for war and his fingers for battle. God is also his steadfast love, his covenant-keeping God, who will never run away or turn from him. God is his fortress. It's that place high up on a hill that's just out of range from the enemy's arrows, but also the right vantage point to look down to see the enemy. God is a stronghold. When, when everything around him seems to be slipping away and sliding into chaos, God is the one who has an iron grip on David. He will never let him go. And God is a deliverer. He knows the way out of the battle. He knows the way towards safety and security. And God is a shield for all the ways in which attacks can come upon David. He's the shield of refuge to block anything that might be flung his way. I mean, who can do and who can be all of these things except for the one true God, Yahweh? See, we see David begin this psalm by looking to the greatness of God to consider and remember the character of this God to whom he belongs. And this should be our starting point as well. As we get up to face each day, as we endure long suffering, our eyes have got to be fixed on the character of God and trust in all that he is for us. See, our battles today look different than David's. Sure, there are still actual wars being fought today, but our battles are primarily spiritual in nature. Our enemies are more often unseen and yet may actually be more dangerous to our faith than a physical army. I'll speak more about that in a minute, but initially, it's important that we always begin by reminding ourselves the character and greatness of God and the rules of engagement, as they say. This is a Christian starting point. God is our rock. Reminding ourselves what's true of God, then it helps us to move ahead. It helps us engage in the fight. I mean, you would think that just one of these characteristics is enough to hang on to and great to consider, but every battle we face in life is different, isn't it? Every human being is weak and we tend to doubt God, and so he gives us seven or eight, right? So that we don't forget who he is. So then David turns his eyes from upward to downward as he considers the smallness of man. Uh, verse three and four. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? 
Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. So you see the sharp contrast between who God is and who man is. It begs the question, like, really, who are we? I mean, why would a God so great and powerful even care about us? And you realize this question can actually be asked in skepticism or it can be asked in awe. The skeptic, skeptic would ask something like this. Like, why would a force capable of generating this vast universe have any regard to such tiny, short-lived human beings on a speck of dust called Earth? To which I would respond to the skeptic, exactly. There's no good reason for God to care about us. But he does. Turn to Deuteronomy 7. Deuteronomy 7. We see here, this is in the context of God instructing the Israelites before they entered the land of Canaan, the promised land. He tells them why they are significant from all the other nations. Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. See, as David asks, why would God care about man or think of him? He simply loves you. He has chosen you because he's a covenant-keeping God, and he will never stop loving his people. And even though his people continue to be rebellious and sinful, even though we are but a breath and our days are as a passing shadow, he still cares for us. You can find this similar thought in Psalm 8. So turn to Psalm 8. I got you going all over the place this morning. Psalm 8, another psalm of David. We'll pick up in verse 3. David is is singing about all of creation. In verse 3, he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You see, David looks at creation and he's in amazement that compared to the majesty of creation, that God is mindful of him, that he cares for him. Because God has shared with us his glory. He's made us in his image. He regards us. God thinks of us. And that should cause his people to feel a deep sense of gratitude of security, and a love towards a God who first loved us. He hasn't left us alone. Friends, God cares. He's not distant. He's not aloof. He's not unaware. He cares about your life. That area of your life that feels maybe untouched by God right now, that struggle, that problem you're facing, you've been praying about, getting no help, it seems, you feel like you're getting no relief, God knows and he cares. 
Now David is humbled, it seems, that the God of all creation would regard him, would think of him, would help him. And he, but he does, and because this is true, he can pray then with boldness what he's about to petition of God. So he goes from looking up to who God is to looking down at who man is, and now he looks around at his circumstances and he implores God. He asks God to act. And that's number three, the acts of God. Verse 5 now of of uh, Psalm 144. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners, whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. David is saying, God, come down. Break through that veil between heaven and earth and make your presence known in a powerful way. With such power that when you touch mountains, they'll smoke. The flashes of lightning scatters them. That your arrows will scatter them. And you have to think, wait, who's he talking about? Who's the them (laughs) to this point? He really hasn't mentioned someone up to this point, but he does mention who the them (laughs) is. At the end of verse 7, He says, rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners. He's referring to those whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is full of falsehood. These are his enemies, which are ultimately God's enemies as well. And this is the first mention of the enemies of David from whom he is desiring to be rescued, a people who are not his own people, foreigners or aliens, as some translations put it, people on the outside People who are against God, people who are deceitful, who don't live in truth, they speak lies, they hold out their right hand, but it's a right hand of falsehood. Or like when you raise your right hand to take an oath, there's nothing behind it. When you shake their hand in a deal or an agreement, there's nothing there. It's empty. It's people that say one thing, but do another. Now who knows what lies these people were spreading against David But what he is asking is that God would intervene, that he would scatter them, that he would rout them. And this imagery of God acting is no doubt based on Old Testament events as we think about Mount Sinai where God acted to give the law to the Israelites on the mountain through clouds of smoke and fire. Or the deliverance of the Israelites at the Red Sea, right, where God saved them through the waters. Or even the crossing of the Jordan River as they entered the land of Canaan through the waters. You see, this image of waters in the Old Testament refers to death and destruction. And David asks God, deliver me from the many waters and from my enemies. And you know, we pray these same things, don't we? We don't like to be in conflict. Nobody likes to be in a battle. We pray, God, deliver us, keep my enemies away, scatter them. And while David fought actual battles, we, on the other hand, are not out there with swords and shields fighting. Thankfully, I think I'd be a terrible warrior. Um, I would really have to take up verse two here, that, or verse one, that he would train my hand for battle. That would be my prayer. But the reality for us is that there's a very real spiritual battle that we believers are in the middle of. And unfortunately, some Christians are completely, they completely ignore the reality of this war, whereas others perhaps give it more attention than they should. C.S. Lewis talks about this danger of both extremes in his book, The Screwtape Letters. 
He says there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So you see, there can be lots of confusion surrounding this topic, a lot of mystery. It makes many people anxious when they think about spiritual warfare. I mean, I I remember reading back in the 90s, This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti. Um, Now, that's more of a Christian pop culture rendering of spiritual warfare, so I wouldn't necessarily recommend you start there. In fact, maybe don't even go there. Just, Just go to the scriptures where you see a very real enemy, right, called Satan, and the world that's fallen into his power since he seduced humanity and brought about its fall in Genesis 3. He's what the Bible calls the prince of this world, the God of this age, and he seeks to destroy our faith. And the church all has this battle in common, and we're all called to fight against him, always. We, we pray this from Matthew 6, 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Or Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Or 1 Peter 5, 9, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He says, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And we know that there is a point where Satan will be destroyed. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Can I get an amen to that verse? Amen. And so we fight our battles knowing, we already know the outcome of the war. We fight our spiritual battles like storming the beaches on D-Day, but with this knowledge that victory day has already happened. The battle does not necessarily take place on soil, but it's in our souls. It's a battle to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. It's a battle to love what God loves and to hate what he hates. It's a battle to live holy and righteous lives, being an imitator of God. It's a battle to allow the Lord of all creation to be the Lord of our lives as well to not sit in the seat of authority, but to submit to his righteous rule in our lives. See, the forces of evil come from outside to continually tempt us, but also our own hearts can deceive us. We can rationalize sin. We can compartmentalize our spiritual lives. We can make excuses. We can say, well, that's how I was raised. That's why I'm like this, or that's my Enneagram number. That's, you know, just gotta put up with it, right? It's how I am. Say, no, we must be clear about the own threat within our own hearts right, about who we are and the sinful tendencies we have. Our flesh tempts us to not believe that we actually are dead to sin. And even the world around us, it's shiny, it's sparkly. We're drawn to loving it more than we can love God. But the good news, friends, is that the strength to fight this battle does not come from us. As David prayed, bow your heavens and come down, send out your arrows, stretch out your hand, rescue me and deliver me. And so we call upon God to help us. And he doesn't just like dole out little measures of strength. Here, there's a teaspoon for you and there's a cup for you and 
It's not like that. He becomes our strength. Psalm 28, 7, David said, the Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I'm helped. The Lord doesn't just give us his strength. He is our strength because as believers, you're united to him. You're indwelt by his spirit. So you can say with David, the Lord is my strength. So how do we fight the spiritual battle? How does the Lord train our hands for war and our fingers for battle? What does this look like? Well, spiritual warfare is, I think, far more boring than we like to make it out to be. We think something like hyperdramatic when we hear that term, right? Spiritual warfare. We think casting out spirits and things like that. Well, 2 Corinthians 3, um, 10, sorry, 3 through 4 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not wait, wait, <laughs> easy for you to say. We're not waging war against the flesh, but the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So what are the weapons of our war? Things like prayer, things like the word of God, our faith, living in the power of the spirit, being in and amongst a community of believers called the church, So these are what some have called the ordinary means of grace. These simple yet profound things that we engage in every day are the weapons we use to fight this war. I mean, think about how simple, how mundane a baptism is. The baptismal font's not out here this morning, but if it were, it'd be a great example, right? It's just water in a bowl, and it's just words. Or or think about a, a worship service, right? I mean, sure, we've got projection and words appear on a screen, but this is very simple, right? Think about communion. It's just bits of bread and and in our tradition, juice, right? Or a sermon preached even, but here's the difference. It's the power of God behind it. It's the power of his word by his spirit that are the weapons of spiritual warfare. And as 2 Corinthians 10.4 says, they have the power to destroy. Think about that. They have power to destroy. See, the church is in a battle, and the way we engage in it is through the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments, through the using of the ordinary means of grace, prayer, word, community, and so on. I can't talk about this topic and not mention Ephesians 6, right? The armor of God. You are waiting, I know. Here, Paul describes a Roman soldier looking at each part of his soldier's armor and weaponry, and he draws a parallel to the Christian life. He says, you must wear the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace has got to be on your feet, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. God has equipped us with everything we need to do what he says in Ephesians 6.10, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And he provides us with the spiritual resources. And in the book um, aptly titled Spiritual Warfare, uh, pastors Brian Borgman and Rob Ventura say this. They say, as Christians, we need the whole armor because our enemy is a re- relentless foe. If Satan cannot wound us in one place, he'll target another. If not the head, then the heart. If not the conscience, then the emotions. Since Satan attacks us in a variety of ways, God provides a variety of defenses sufficient to withstand any assault he might throw at us. In Christ, 
God grants us all that we need to protect us from head to toe. And so we rely on God's strength and can call upon God as we see David pleading with God in this psalm to come down, break into this situation, deliver him, help him. And even in the midst of his strife, David employs yet another weapon of spiritual warfare, and that is song. Look at verse 9. He says, I will sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp I will play to you, who gives victory to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. You see, even in the midst of trial and struggle and the anxiety of the battle that lies ahead of him, he sings. He says he will sing because he knows of the character and nature of God. He can rest and rely on that. Singing is another weapon. Martin Luther talks about worshiping God through song this way. He says, music is a fair and lovely gift of God which has often wakened and moved me to the joy of preaching. Music drives away the devil and makes people joyful. Next, after theology, I give to you music, the highest place and greatest honor. I would not change what little I know of music for something great. Experience proves that next to the word of God, only music deserves to be extolled as the mistress and governess of the feelings of the human heart. We know that to the devil, Music is distasteful and insufferable. My heart bubbles up and overflows in response to music, which has so often refreshed me and delivered me from dire plagues. So you can imagine the director of music is going to quote that great quote from Martin Luther. Um, It's great. Our gathered worship times together as we sing It's not just a time to express our emotions or to practice singing. It's a time for warfare. Music has a unique way to tap into both our minds and our emotions at the same time. That's why when we sing songs like, Oh, Praise the Name last Sunday after communion, or or we sing, Holy, 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 we're moved at times to the point of tears, right? Because we're proclaiming truth with our whole being. It's a way in which we fight that spiritual battle by coming into the sanctuary each week and singing a new song. And this isn't necessarily a command to worship leaders to keep writing new songs. Now, while that is beneficial to the church, the newness is more, I think, in the context of our lives. Because when we gathered this morning to sing the songs that were chosen to sing, even though they're familiar songs, well, most of them, we did sing a newer one today, They're new to us today. We haven't sung them in light of what's happened in our lives this past week, what's happened at work, at home, at school, and our life has been heavy this week, especially as a church. Singing these songs this morning in light of losing a dear friend and member in our congregation takes a different feel, doesn't it, to sing um, words from Abide With Me. Abide with me, fast falls the even tide. The darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide when other helpers fail and comforts flee. Help of the helpless, abide with me. We sang, I need thy presence every passing hour. What but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? Who like thyself, my guide and stay, can be through clouds and sunshine? Abide with me. We sang, I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. 
Ills have no weight and tears lose their bitterness. Where is thy sting death? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still, abide with me. These words feel different this week, don't they? So we sing, we read the word, we pray, we participate in Christian community, we fight the spiritual battle. And I wonder in what ways do we need to shore up some defenses? In what ways do we need to employ more spiritual weapons in our life? What ordinary means of grace perhaps have you been neglecting? Call upon God to help you, to strengthen you. We must remember to keep it all in perspective that that the battles we face, the battles are temporary. They have an end point, and that's what the end of this psalm points us to. David points us to this final blessing of God, and that's this fourth point, the blessing of man, verse 12. May our sons in their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. You'll notice there's a change in voice. David changes from the first person, I and me and my, to saying our. He's saying there's a corporate enjoyment of this blessing of God. The final part of this psalm shows us what happens when God delivers a nation from the hand of foreigners and liars, that there will be no military threat, that families and society will experience security and peace, that our families will flourish, our sons and daughters will grow to maturity, our work will flourish, it will be abundant, we'll have plenty to eat. Not only that, our cities will experience peace, there will be no distress in the streets. As you can think ahead, right? This is a picture anticipating, pointing us to our future home in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, If you want to turn there, you can to Revelation 21, just the first four verses. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning, mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is our future, church. We know this is what David longed for, that his prayer was eventually answered, that, that the Lord God did bow the heavens. He did come down. He acted. He stretched out his hand. He became flesh. Jesus, he came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves in fighting every spiritual battle and defeating every enemy we would face in this life. Jesus lived a sinless life, resisted temptation from the devil, encountered and drove out evil spirits. He suffered false accusations from man. He was misunderstood. He was marginalized. He was mistreated. He worked miracles. He healed. He forgave sinners. He walked alongside people in their suffering. 
and he brought relief. He fed people. He taught. He brought hope into this world, for in him light shined and darkness had not overcome it. His life was a path to a cross where he willingly gave himself and suffered excruciating pain and died in the place of sinners so that they would not have to die in their sins. This perfect one, this sinless one, paid the penalty for sin on the cross and died. And they placed his lifeless body in a tomb, but he did not stay dead. In a miraculous display of power and might, Jesus was raised from the dead. And just when Satan had thought he had won the victory, Jesus emerges from the tomb in a resurrected, perfected body. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the kingly rule of David was just a prequel to a true and better king, Jesus, who rules over all of his creation and has conquered all of his enemies in his death and in his resurrection. King Jesus took on the humility of mankind and he died, which was an answer to David's request for God to rescue him from all of his enemies. And as his people, people who belong to God, you and I experience the blessing of victory over sin. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Our spiritual battles in this life, though they are real and they are difficult, they're fought in the light of this victory that's already secured for us. And so for all those who are in Christ, who believe in his name, who trust in him for salvation from sin, have this blessing to look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. But until that day, church, we must remain engaged in this battle, fighting the good fight of faith as the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. And so as I conclude, I want to point us back to the beginning of Psalm 144 and point out one of the key words. It's found actually nine times. It's unmistakable. It's the word, my. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for, battle, or for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. Is God these things for you? Is he these things for you? Because he's only these things for those who believe and trust in him, those who have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I would urge you this morning, to call upon the name of Jesus Christ if you have never done so. Make him your rock upon whom you build your life. Because the days are short. Man is but a breath. We're a passing shadow. What are you waiting for? There will be a day when Jesus returns and every one of us is going to need a place to stand. Will you be standing by faith in the rock of Jesus Christ alone, or will you be standing on the sandy ground of self-reliance and unbelief in the one who loves you to the point of dying for you? But if you know and if you trust Jesus Christ, then you have been given everything you need to fight the spiritual battles in this life. And so we continue to remind ourselves who God is. We continue to be humbled at who we are, And we call upon him for help. We sing a song to him. 
we fight this spiritual fight and we look ahead with hope because blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Let's pray. King Jesus, we are in awe and we're in wonder that you would consider us, but you do. You set your love upon us. You've shown us favor and kindness and mercy and grace, and you've equipped us with everything that we need. And so I pray for the strength to continue in the spiritual battles that you've called us to. I pray for the perseverance and the endurance that can only come by your spirit who empowers and strengthens. I pray that in those times we feel like the enemy is winning, that we would be quick to remember the victory that is ours through Jesus Christ. That because of the cross and because of the empty tomb, we are victorious. You have not left us alone. You've bowed the heavens, you've come down to be with us. Emmanuel, Lord, be our rock, be our trainer, be our steadfast love, be our fortress, be our stronghold, be our deliverer, our shield, be the one in whom we take refuge today and every day we live. And we pray all of this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.